Charles Spencer, the ninth Earl of Spencer, is a man of many talents. You will know him variously as a television reporter, a newspaper contributor, a documentarian, the founder of a literary festival, the creator of a line of historic reproduction furniture, the restorer of his Northamptonshire ancestral seat, Althorpe, and as the maternal uncle of the future King of England. Lord Spencer visits us today, however, in his capacity as an historian, trained in modern history at Magdalen College, Oxford. His books include Althorpe, The Story of an English House, The Spencers, A Personal History of an English Family, Blenheim, Battle for Europe, Prince Rupert, The Last Cavalier, and the book about which he will be speaking today, Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I. Please join me in welcoming Lord Spencer to the Athenaeum. Thank you very much. Well, that's a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for that. It's lovely to be back in Boston. I have visited here many times, and I can't think of a more suitable setting for talking about the killers of the king, uh, because <laughs> three of them ended up here, and obviously there are other connections too. So I, I, I actually feel a bit of a connection here too, because I had an American grandfather who was educated, or at least spent time at Harvard. Um, <laughs> In the introduction, it was mentioned that I had written a book on Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who was a, a cavalry commander in the uh, English Civil War and also became the supreme commander of the King's Army. And this is a, a figure who brought me to this book today, who was a tiny bit part player in the biography of Prince Rupert, uh, a man called Colonel John Oakey. You would have to be a very, very uh, clever studier of the Civil War to know his name but he caused Prince Rupert a lot of strife during the Battle of Naseby, sort of the English equivalent of Gettysburg. And I was on a, a, a website, which I'm sure a lot of you visit daily, called executedtoday.com. <laughs> and it turned out it was exactly 350 years to the day of the death by execution of John Oakey. And it said on this obscure website, he was put to death for being a killer of the king. And I thought, goodness, I didn't know Oki ended up like that. And it set me really on a, a detective mission to find out who these people were who put Charles to death. I could, at the time, only really with confidence name Oliver Cromwell, uh, why they did it and what happened to them. So I have a great debt to Colonel John Oki. Now, Charles I, when I came to study this period, I, I assumed when I wrote this book that I'd feel immense sympathy for this man. And actually, as a man, I did. He is a, a very interesting figure in his own right, a great patron of the arts, uh, a, a good husband, a loving father, but sadly for him, an absolutely terrible king. We have to give him some leeway here. He was not meant to be uh, put on the throne. What happened was that his elder brother took a, an ill-advised dip in the River Thames and died. And so we ended up with a second son who was very bookish. His favorite things were reading the Bible, playing chess, and playing lawn bowls. Uh, suddenly on the throne at a time when really tectonic plates were shifting in England in terms of religion, society, and politics. And this was a man not born to leadership at all. Uh, he very much took the opinion of the last person who spoke to him on board and acted on it. 
And uh, unfortunately, further, he used to surround himself with not very bright advisors. So he was reacting to poor advice a lot of the time. But here he is in his pomp, uh, painted by Van Dyck, one of the artists he, he looked after. And I would say, you know, up until the Civil War broke out, I think if you were in mainland Europe and you looked across the North Sea or the Channel uh, as another ruler, you would envy Charles. You would have thought he has things pretty easy because they were convulsed in the Thirty Years' War, a truly brutal conflict, mainly between Catholics and Protestants. But Charles's incompetence as a ruler, uh, a very arrogant man set in his ways, particularly in matters of religion, which, of course, was so finely intertwined with politics at the time, led to this very bloody set of civil wars. This is a, a painting representing the uh, Battle of Marston Moor in 1644, when uh, Charles I lost the whole of northern England, effectively, in, in a day. And I, I use this picture to illustrate it because it is important to realize the scale and bloodiness of this war. It remains the bloodiest conflict, in fact, that Britain's been involved in ever in terms of loss of life per percentage of, uh, per head of population. Uh, so it has that in common with your own civil war, I believe. Uh, and it was this truly appalling uh, bloodshed that shocked so many that they started to think, well, who is to blame for this? And they looked around. And there was a second civil war from which this is a news sheet, uh, which I think, in terms of my story for you today, set the seal on Charles I's fate. Uh, it was one thing to lose one civil war when it was seen at the time, uh, a very superstitious age, of course, that if you lost battles or a war, it was God's judgment against you. But when he was kept in prison, uh, not a prison that you and I had recognized, he was kept in a succession of palaces in some comfort, uh, he managed to stir up rebellions from the north, which led to this second civil war. And I have to say, when we're, we're looking at this picture, it reminds me of the joy of studying history and, and particularly researching a book like this because you come across such unexpected nuggets. Uh, in fact, I found that from the siege of Colchester, which this is the news sheet from, Humpty Dumpty, far from being a strange egg-shaped being, was in fact the main royal cannon. And it was placed on a wall at Colchester. And of course, when it was knocked off the wall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put it together again. But ultimately, Colchester was uh, the end of the Second Civil War, and it was a time when people thought, we cannot have this man continually stirring up further warfare with all the bloodshed that's resulting from it. And we all know that the Bible is so full of so many things, you can sort of find a verse to suit any occasion, and the Puritans who were looking for somebody to blame for this bloodshed came across an obscure verse in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which said, if you want to purge a land of bloodshed, you have to kill that man of blood who caused it. And they decided that was Charles. Now, he had had chances to escape. The royalist headquarters in the first civil war was Oxford, and this was uh, this representation behind me is of Charles going off in disguise, trotting out of Oxford. He, he took a, an unfortunate course uh, his advisers said he should flee for continental Europe, but he was the last Scottish king of England. He was born in Scotland. He was a Stuart, and he decided instead to throw himself on the mercy of the Scottish army. Now, the Scottish army were actually fighting his royalist forces up in the north of England, and the Scots were slightly stunned to see the commanding officer of their uh, opponents hand himself into them. 
and they made these very bold pronouncements that they'd think long and hard about what they'd do with this much-vaunted prisoner, and then they promptly sold him to Parliament for £100,000. I include this picture, although it's very poor quality, it's the only one I have of this woman uh, who is quite key for the early part of the, the story I give. Her name is Jane Horwood, and she was the wife of a not very brave man who lived outside Oxford. Uh, he decided during the Civil War to go and move alone to Europe uh, because he didn't want to be on one side or the other, and he'd wait to see how it turned out. Now, Jane was made of much sterner stuff, and as I mentioned earlier, Oxford being the royalist headquarters, she acted really as a spy and a smuggler for the king. Uh, she brought in, in barrels which were dressed up to look like laundry uh, equipment, huge quantities of gold, enough, in fact, to fund the flight from Scotland of a lot of the royal family. Later, when Charles was, a kept, was kept prisoner on the Isle of Wight off the south coast of England, Jane continued this role, going backwards and forwards between London and the Isle of Wight, bringing the king messages about how things were looking in, for him in London. And, in fact, they had an affair. We know this from uh, coded correspondence that they began an affair. And she was very adamant. She grew increasingly worried about Charles's prospects as the Puritan hardcore in London looked for vengeance against him for this bloodshed. She managed to smuggle into him some nitric acid and a file to get through the bars of his window. Uh, but poor Charles, hapless to the end, got stuck in the window. <laughs> And then Jane hired a boat and uh, stayed on it off the coast of the Isle of Wight waiting for her king and lover, but he never came. He was transported to London for trial. He's the figure with his back to you about a third of the way up with the black hat on. The hat being on is significant because he was determined to show no respect for this court. And it's absolutely true that he was judged in a courtroom that had no validity whatsoever. And he was extremely principled and fluent during his trial. This is a man who had uh, a quite pronounced stammer throughout his life. But as he defended his stance, which was really uh, encapsulating the entire royalist cause from the Civil War, he said, I will not be judged by men. I will certainly not be judged by my subjects. I am answerable only to God. In return, the parliamentarians sitting there, those serried ranks who make up a large proportion of the killers of the king, from my book, uh, they were a, it was basically a military tribunal. They had hijacked Parliament. They had kicked out the House of Lords, and they had purged the House of Commons and spiced it up with uh, many colonels from the New Model Army, the very, very professional, flinty unit that had effectively destroyed the Royalist Army. So it was uh, over several days the king refused to plead guilty or not guilty, and he had these rather magnificent verbal spats with the leader of the judges, a man called John Bradshaw. Now, a lot of the senior lawyers in London, when they were asked to prosecute the King of England or judge him, uh, decided that they had developed flu or an urgent need to go to the countryside. Uh, they, did, they were not prepared to risk their lives in something so, so unusually, well, so unique. And Bradshaw actually turned out to be the perfect man for the job because he had absolutely no respect for the King as King. He was very happy to try him as Charles Stuart. And as I said, Charles put forward the arguments of the royalist cause. Bradshaw was absolutely adamant that the king was a tyrant and traitor who had raised his standard against his own people and deserved to be put to death as a result. And those serried ranks of men, the commissioners who judged this, 
uh, on the final day of the trial, they suddenly said to Charles, you've had three chances to plead guilty or not guilty. The fact that you are not prepared to plead admits your guilt. So he was sent for execution. A special scaffold was erected outside his own palace of Whitehall. And it's quite interesting, again, as a historian, to see the things that occupied the king and his mind at this time. He was incredibly brave at the end, which did his cause a lot of good and actually caused the killers a little time afterwards a lot of trouble. Uh, but this is a man about to die who has said goodbye to his youngest children the day before. And the things that really transfix him are, unlike this rather melodramatic portrait, he was most upset that the block he was asked to lay his neck on was only six inches high, and he asked for it to be uh, improved to a higher state, but it wasn't going to happen. And then the other thing that was really occupying him at the end was uh, he kept asking people to stand away from the blade of the axe that was going to kill him. He was worried if, if anyone touched it, it would dull the blade and make his exit from this world rather more difficult. Now, this great uh, sort of uh, nobility at his end, it was his finest day, this, this whole exit that he had, was basically uh, the cause of him becoming very quickly in the royalist, remaining royalist mind, a sort of saint and martyr. And we'll see how that impacted on things later. This is now the decade of Cromwell. I'm sure a lot of your ancestors in this room would not like Cromwell very much. Uh, and I showed this, actually, when I was speaking at the Dublin History of Festival, and they were sort of booing. He is obviously a, a deeply unpopular man to anyone with Irish roots, and he was abominably behaved towards the Irish. So he is a unique figure in British history, being a ruler of our country who was uh, a commoner. Uh, he was tempted to become king. I think he wanted to become king, possibly because of status, but also because he wanted to ensure that there was an alternative to the Stuarts after his own death. But the people who killed the king with him made it absolutely clear that it was not acceptable for him to crown himself. And so he was the Lord Protector of England. He was still the ruler, uh, but he wasn't king. But in my story, he's not just a, a very gifted general and politician. He's actually quite a strange man. And we have this scene where he, he's really the main instigator of the, the death of the king. And he's in a room in the palaces of Westminster in London, getting 58 others to join him in signing the death warrant, laughing like a maniac, you know, I cannot think of a more solemn occasion. And eyewitnesses having flicking ink at the other uh, signatories. So quite a strange man, as well as a brutal one, uh, when he took his troops after the execution of Charles I to Ireland, he was absolutely sure, because of black Puritan propaganda, that the Irish Catholics had killed 200,000 Protestants a decade earlier. Well, we know that's not true. Maybe 4,000, 5,000 died. But the, the, the propaganda was put about by very sophisticated minds, people like John Milton, who persuaded uh, fellow Puritans that the Irish Catholics were a sort of underspecies and therefore not worthy of, of, of common human decency. And here we see uh, some Irish citizens being put to the sword after the, the taking of the city of Wexford. Cromwell was equally controversial back in England. He tired of the House of Commons not really getting things done, and this is him turfing them out. And I come from a very strange country where you can decapitate a king and turf out Parliament and still end up with the largest statue outside the House of Commons. <laughs> <laughs> 
Cromwell died very suddenly in 1658, and we had about 18 months after that of ever-increasing chaos. His son was left as the Lord Protector, but wasn't interested and wasn't able to uh, complete that post, so he resigned. And then things got very ugly around Britain. And the powers in London decided there was only one thing to do, and that was to go back to monarchy. And this is Charles II in a propaganda painting soon after his coronation. And basically, I, I, when I was researching the pictures for this book, uh, I needed to find one showing Charles II looking serious. And this was it. There aren't any others. Um, he's generally looking loose and leery with a woman in the distance. And um, we, this is a man who dedicated his life to pleasure. We know of 54 mistresses. But in my book, he is vengeful. He came back really surprisingly strong from an exile of a decade where he lived as a penniless exile uh, in various European lands with, by the end of it, no expectation of coming back. It was just Cromwell's sudden death and the unraveling that, that produced his opportunity. And he came back on three conditions. One was that the army was paid. They were causing a lot of trouble by not being paid. Another was to say that all the lands confiscated from royalists, other than his own and the church lands, would not be given back to their original owners. But the big one, especially for my book, was that he must not look for vengeance against the 50% of the nation who had fought against his family. Now, Charles had a very able lawyer, a man called Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, who wrote on his behalf, agreeing to those three points, but as lawyers do, leaving a little phrase in there which nobody noticed at the time. But he said, and one thing I have to acknowledge is that my late father had one fault. He never listened to Parliament, and I won't make that mistake. And when he was safely back in power, he packed Parliament and then looked for vengeance, not against the 50% of the nation who had fought against him, but against those killers of the king that are the subject of my book. And this is the driving narrative of what I've written about what happened to these people. Now, originally, there were 80 regicides or killers. They were the 59 who signed the death warrant, and then the other 20 or so were the prosecuting counsel and the officers on the scaffold at the execution. And this being a time of very limited life expectancy, you, you would expect to die at average age of 38 at this time, 20 of those men had died during the decade of the Commonwealth. So, really, we're looking at what happened to those 60. But the first vengeance was against ones who had already died, which sounds petty, but it meant a lot at the time. <laughs> and uh, here we have three of them, Cromwell, Bradshaw, who we met earlier as the, the senior judge, and Ireton, who was uh, Cromwell's son-in-law and right-hand man. They had been buried in great state in Westminster Abbey. Their tombs were cracked open, they were dragged through the streets, and they were hanged at what is now Marble Arch for a day, much to the enjoyment of the people of London to see these very fine, important men uh, dangling there. And then their bodies were broken up and thrown into a common pit. And then the question was, who else would Charles look for to suffer for the death of his father? And there was a thought that it would only be a handful at this time. There seemed to be a sort of biblical belief that seven was a, a magical number. And top of everyone's list of suspects as to those who would be put to death in this way was a man called Colonel Henry Martin. Now, Henry Martin is, out of the 80 men who killed the king, uh, the most, I, I think, out of all of them, he's the one who loathed Charles personally the most. I think it's genuinely true that most of the ones who killed him did so because they thought they were doing the right thing politically or through their religious convictions. But Henry Martin had a personal loathing for him, and it stemmed from 
a time when he was attending a racehorse meeting in Hyde Park, which the king was the guest of honor at. And Henry Martin was one of these politicians who was unbelievably charismatic. People used to pack into the House of Commons when he was speaking. He was very funny, good value. But unusually for a Puritan, he was a hard-drinking womanizer. And um, <laughs> Charles I wasn't. And he was absolutely appalled to see Henry Martin in his presence and demanded that that whoremonger be removed from this place. And I think this set Martin at utter humiliation to be called that by the king in front of a lot of people, set him on a lifetime of hatred of not only him but the royal family. In fact, his own side, the parliamentarians, put him in the Tower of London for demanding the death of all the royal family during the Civil War. But Martin was a brilliant, brilliant brain, and he put together a lot of the legal constructs around the trial of Charles I. And so that is why people thought he's absolutely going to be one for execution. But what happened then was Henry Martin turned on the charm during the court appearance. And he's, he admitted his guilt, but he said, you, you know, there's no point in killing me. I'm too ridiculous, really. <laughs> and uh, the court agreed, and such was his persuasive charm that he was sent for life imprisonment, but he was allowed to take his mistress with him. This is a man who had enormous presence of mind. He's called Colonel John Hutchinson. He's a gentleman from Nottinghamshire in the Midlands of England and an MP. And during the sort of two-month period when it was clear that Charles II was going to come back, but it wasn't sure quite in what form, he got up in the chamber of the House of Commons and he said, look, you're going to find out I was a little bit involved in the death of the king, but I was very young. I didn't mean it. And then his masterstroke was to say, but I realize we've reached a crossroads, and if my death will help us move forward as a country, then I offer my life to you. Well, they all thought this was marvelous, of course. And he was forgiven, and he went home to his wife, and he said, well, you won't believe it, I, I am forgiven. And she said, get it in writing. And so, <laughs> on this wifely advice, he went back to the House of Commons and got a written pardon, but we'll see how much good that did him later. This man, sort of the hero of my piece, a man I hadn't heard of even before I wrote the book, is called Lieutenant General Edmund Ludlow. And I believe he probably was a man who could have taken over from Cromwell. Uh, he had the respect of the army and he was a very able politician. But at the time of Cromwell's death, he was stationed in Ireland and he was sort of out of the way. Now Ludlow was pretty sure he would be one of the ones to suffer with his life when the king came back, but he wasn't sure. And it's a very interesting aspect of this story that it really came down to how intelligent and sensitive the wives were as to the chances of escape of their husbands at this very difficult time. So Mrs. Ludlow told her husband to go and move out to Richmond, which was then not part of London, and she would find out if he was for it or not. And she based herself from Westminster and reported to him as often as she could on which way the winds of vengeance were blowing and Ludlow didn't really like what he was hearing. You know, he was a highly intelligent, sophisticated man. Um, in the imaginary movie that, of course, I projected on, onto this book, he would be played by Colin Firth. Um, <laughs> and he decided that he would be best off uh, being absolutely certain of events. And so he fled to a town on the, uh, on the side of Lake Geneva called Vevi or Vivi. And he based himself there and endured an unbelievable number of kidnap and assassination attempts, along with another seven or eight of these fellow regicides. And Ludlow became their unofficial leader, and he said to them, look, all we hear from around Europe 
is our old comrades being assassinated or dragged back for England. And to be honest, I can't promise we've got much hope staying here, but it is our only hope. The local people have promised to look after us. We know who everyone's faces are. Who knows what could happen to us? We could be walking through a street somewhere else in Europe, and, and the person next to us could be our greatest enemy. And all of these others decided to stay with him. They, they accepted this was their best way forward. Uh, except one man, quite an unusual man in my story. <clears throat> he was a senior figure in the case against the king. His name was John Lyle. He was convinced that it was Ludlow's presence, because he was such a big fish, that was going to end in all their destruction. He invented a bogus excuse to leave and settled himself in Lausanne, took the precaution of adopting a, a, a pseudonym, and an alias, and, and as he was there, uh, he could not give up uh, his former status. And despite all his other acts of, of trying to lay low, on Sundays he used to like to go to church wearing his robes as Lord Chancellor of England. <laughs> and one day he was processing to church when two Irishmen coming the other way uh, came towards him. One shouted, long live the king, whipped up his cloak and shot Lyle to death with a blunderbuss. Ludlow and the others who stayed there, despite all their unbelievable adventures, uh, managed to die in their own beds. And this is what they were fleeing from. The most terrible way of going, um, hanging, drawing, and quartering, was a, a relic of the Middle Ages, which carried on, I think, until the mid-18th century in England. Very rarely, but it was on the statues. And I have to explain what it was. It's, it is gruesome, and I apologize, but it's before lunch, so we can get away with it. But... Um, <laughs> It was very symbolic. It meant a lot. It wasn't just uh, sadistic. So you were dragged through the streets to your place of execution. This was to symbolize your being taken out of the normal places of human existence where you're no longer welcome. And you were hanged by the neck until you were unconscious, but then you were cut down while you were still alive. They woke you up, castrated you. This was a symbol that it was the end of your line. They confiscated all your property and left your family destitute. And then they disemboweled them while they were still alive and burnt their guts in front of them. This was thought to be a favor um, because they believed in the medieval mind, and this was a hangover from it, that your worst thoughts and instincts resided in your stomach. And by burning them, you had a chance of purity and therefore being judged fairly after death. And then at this point, probably quite gratefully, you died, uh, either of shock or loss of blood. And then your head was chopped off and placed on a spike to overlook forever the place of your crime. So these first batch of executions took place uh, in Charing Cross. And then you were, in culinary terms, you were parboiled and uh, chopped into four, and the parts of your body were sent to different parts of the kingdom, probably as a very effective deterrent. And the first man to suffer this appalling end was this rather wonderful man called Colonel Thomas Harrison, and Harrison was much loathed by the royalists for many reasons. One, or, one of those was that he had been seen shooting to death in cold blood prisoners in battle. Uh, a second one was that he came from a, a quite extreme religious group called the Fifth Monarchists. They believed that there had been four failed empires of man, uh, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman. But the monarchy that would really matter was that of God at his second coming. And from their very intense study of the Bible, they had convinced themselves that this was just around the corner. It would happen in 1666. It was there in the book of Revelation. And um, 
they, it was a very threatening sect, really, in it, all its beliefs, because it didn't believe in earthly power at all. The other reason he was top of the list and first to go was because he had been in charge of Charles I's transfer from prison in the Isle of Wight to his execution and was known to have been rude and unpleasant to the king, who, as I say, had this aura of suffering, which was almost Christ-like in the eyes of the royalists. Now, Harrison actually was a very poor choice to send off to the gallows first because he was intensely brave. And he bade his wife farewell, telling her that uh, it was the happiest day of his life, uh, including their wedding day, which must have gone down well. And uh, then he was smiling, and Samuel Pepys, an eyewitness, said he'd never seen a man look so happy going to his death. And he was dragged through the street, and people shouted out, where's your good old cause, the good old cause of Parliament? Where's your good old cause now? And he beat his chest, and he said, it's here. And then they made him stand on the scaffold before the appalling things were going to happen to him. And they, he was seen to shake, and people started jeering and calling him a coward. And he said, no, no, you're quite wrong. I've just been wounded in too many battles, and it's left me in this state. And then when they had done the worst to him, uh, he, was he was able to swing a punch at the executioner and send him flying. And people thought this was marvelous. And this was a time when your moral character was seen on display at the time of your death, and not just that, but you were representing a cause. And the fact that Harrison could die so bravely made people think, was there something to his cause? The next batch to go included this very unfortunate man called Adrian Scrope, or Scrope, depending on which part of Britain you come from. And I, I include him really out of sympathy because the royalists had decided that it was up until the end of August that they would uh, compose the list of those who were definitely going to die. It became clear it wasn't going to be seven. It was going to be an awful lot more. And Scrooge was forgiven and pardoned. He was just fined a year's income. But then literally the day before the list of the condemned was closed, somebody remembered a very awkward conversation in which it was quite clear that Scrooge did not regret the death of the king. And he was added to it. And I have no axe to grind on capital punishment politically, but what was so interesting to me researching this book was the devastation of the families, the final audiences of the families with the condemned. You realize, and it's a very obvious point, but not one that I'd really dwelled on before, that capital punishment is a, a terrible punishment on a whole family, uh, as well as friends, of course. Now, we saw John Hutchinson, the man in this painting, before. He's the one, the quick-witted one who got the pardon, and that's his wife, Lucy, who wrote the most wonderful book about this period, and particularly the trials and tribulations of her family. And rather like the Nazis in the Second World War, the big problem for the killers of the king was that they'd left unbelievably immaculate and full notes on everything they had done. And when the scribes went down into the bowels of the House of Commons and brought out the records of the trial, they found that John Hutchinson, far from being the bit part player he had pretended to be, was on every committee, had judged on every day, and was a very, very willing participant in proceedings. And the royalists went round to him and they said, you are guilty. And he said, yes, but I'm pardoned. And they said, well, this will not do. You will have to give evidence against the others. And they produced the death warrant, which rather pathetically had been kept very close by the colonel in charge of the execution's wife. Uh, she thought if ever things got tricky, it would prove that he was only obeying orders, um, a, a defense we know doesn't work very well. And basically, the royalists looked at this document, which had absolute tangible proof of who was involved in, in the death. And they presented this document to Hutchinson and said, right, the first thing you're going to do 
is tell us for sure, are these the signatures of the men that it says it's of? And he had decided by this stage that he was not going to pretend anymore. And he upset the royalists very much by only confirming the signatures of men he knew were already dead. So they said, this is a very unwise move, and you'll have to be a, a witness for the prosecution. He said, no, I'm not pay playing this game at all. And he went back to his estate. And a couple of years later, there was a tiny rebellion up in the north of England, uh, 24 Yorkshiremen, rather optimistically, uh, thinking they could overthrow the crown. And it didn't go well for them. And then after that, the authorities came to Hutchinson's house, and they arrested him and said, you were involved. Well, of course he wasn't, but you can't prove you haven't done something. And they locked him up, treated his family abysmally. Um, he was kept in the Tower of London. They didn't know how to kill him, but they knew they wanted him dead. So eventually they moved him to an appalling prison on the south coast of England and effectively let him die of exposure there. So they got Hutchinson in the end. Now we're nearer to your territory here. This is Hugh Peters, or Hugh Peter, uh, the, the preacher from Salem, uh, originally from England, of course, but he came to Salem. He was a very influential, very popular preacher, um, and he had a particular gift, which was oratory. He was an unbelievable speaker. He was very much uh, in tune with the parliamentary cause in the Civil War, and he went over to England to support it in the 1640s. And he ended up really becoming the chaplain of all the leading parliamentarians, including Cromwell. And he was so effective, actually, he was made colonel of his own regiment, as well as being a preacher. But his role in my story is twofold. First, I, I really can't stress enough what a bizarre concept it was in 1649 to try a king of England. And it was a lot of the, the, the accepting of this bizarre proposition came down to Hugh Peter's oratory. He made it his business to go to all the main churches in London during the build-up to the trial and say to people, it's absolutely fine. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, God was always smiting down kings who had become tyrants, so we can do this. And his other job was to really whip up courage among parliamentarian troops. He was a sort of the, the man who gave the, the, the rousing speech before they went into battle. But actually, there were 13 men eventually who were put to death in the ter uh, terrible way I've described, and a lot of others would have been, but they were too old or too ill to be put through it and died before they could be executed. And Peters, and I'm certainly not judging him, was the only one who uh, met his end in, in, a, in a not very brave way. He fell, fell apart as soon as he was arrested. And his fellow condemned asked the royalists, please, you know, let him get his thoughts in order before he goes to meet his judgment. It's not, it's not all right. He may have to die, but you can't put him to death in this pathetic state he's in. But the royalists really couldn't care less about that, and very cruelly, I, I believe, um, they made him watch from up close while one of his colleagues was put to death in that way. And then the executioner, wiping his hands on his overall, said, so, Mr. Peters, how did you enjoy that? And set about him. Now, not all of these men who died in this way were sort of notable or, or worthy. This is a man called Colonel Axtell. Uh, he was put to death with Colonel Hacker. It's wonderful when you've got an execution story to have Axtell and the Hacker. Um, <laughs> But the, Axtell was a, what we would call a war criminal. He had fought in Ireland, and he had butchered uh, a lot of royalist prisoners. And he wasn't a particularly lovely man. But he was a, very brave again. And this was a, a, a real problem for the royalists, apart from Peter's, how bravely these men died. And this, he was one of the, the last to die in the first batch of ten. 
And he and Hakka in this wagon, they prayed together. They, he, Axtell made a beautiful speech. They hugged each other and they died. And the crowd, you know, in the early days with Harrison or whatever, they'd been baying for blood, but they were beginning to think this isn't, this isn't a, a, a good way for people to be put to death. It's just too savage and too horrible. The, there were three right at the end who met their death. And this is Oki, the man who kindly gave me this story. And he has a most peculiar uh, tale, really. So in the 1640s, he got a letter from somebody from Massachusetts saying they had a friend who had just passed out of the, the first uh, lot of graduates from Harvard. Uh, there was only six graduates at that time. And the man had passed out second. Uh, he had been employed at Harvard for four pounds a year, reading to students. Uh, but he wanted to come to England. But the problem was he had no money at all, and he had to be looked after. And Oki said he'd look after this Harvard man. He could become a chaplain to his regiment. And he saved him from poverty and, and gave him food and shelter. Well, such is the topsy-turvy nature of this period that 15 years later, you have Oki on the run in Germany. And his former chaplain has changed sides and is now Charles II's ambassador to Holland. And Oki wrote to his old friend, the man who he had patronized and looked after, and said, look, my wife's coming to join me, and I'd just love to tiptoe through Holland to welcome her and bring her to my sanctuary in Germany. Is it all right? And his former preacher said, but of course. But then he reneged. He captured Oki and two others uh, in Delft and Holland and kidnapped them and took them back to uh, London. There was no trial for them because by fleeing, they were seen to have admitted their guilt. And Oki said, on his scaffold, he said, I always thought by killing a king, you know, obviously it's a dangerous enterprise, but I never thought I'd be betrayed by my priest. And this is the priest, looking rather unpriestlike, um, much rewarded, given a title and a lot of money. And he was from a family in, in Salem, actually. And basically, he, with his money, he bought up chunks of land, including parts of what are now central London. And the main street is named after him and his name is Downing. So the British prime ministers live in a street named after one of the great traitors of the 17th century. <laughs> now we're even closer to home for you. This is uh, William Gough. He was a very, very important figure in the parliamentary cause. He and his father-in-law, a man called Major General Wally in England, or Whaley over here, uh, they were very, very important men. They were close to Cromwell, in fact, one was a cousin. And Goff and Wally were in, uh, father-in-law and son-in-law to each other. And they arrived here. They left England one day before their arrest warrants were processed. And they arrived here after a long, a 10-week voyage, and uh, just between here and Charlestown. And they were greeted as, really, I suppose, massively welcome celebrities. Uh, these were men who had dared to judge and kill a king. And of course, there were a lot of people over this side of the Atlantic who thought that was a very noble thing to have done. Seven months they lived here, fated by everyone. The governor told people to welcome them with open arms. But then troubling news arrived that anyone who helped them, they had a price on their head of 100 pounds each, dead or alive, but anyone who helped them would be hanged, drawn, and quartered. So from much fated guests, they became toxic criminals. And there was a lot of debate here in Boston uh, as to what to do with them. Should they be handed over to the royal, royal forces, and, uh, which would, I, I was interested to see what they were called redcoats even then, 
and taken back to England, or should they be looked after and hidden? And in the end, they worked out that they couldn't really trust anyone. They didn't want to uh, drag anyone into their very severe problems. And so they decided to disappear and, and hide away from here. They went to Connecticut and really lived the most terrible life. I suppose they lived at least rather than going through it all. They hid in all sorts of places, including uh, this place. It's still called Judge's Rock, named after them in, in Connecticut. Uh, and they had this tiny network of people who helped them, looked after them. Uh, but it was tough. It was really tough. And they lived in Milford in Connecticut uh, for a while. For two years, in fact, they lived in a, a friend's basement. They didn't dare go outside once. We know all this because we have their letters, or copies of their letters, because the originals were here but were burnt in a, an incident in the 1770s. And basically, they didn't know what to do, so they went further and further. They ended up about 80 miles from here, I believe, in Hadley, Massachusetts, which was, I think now it's a town of 5,000 people, but then was a tiny, brand-new religious community where the priest hid them. And they lived for about a decade behind his fireplace. Uh, by daytime, they had daylight. There was a sort of a cubbyhole above the back of the, the chimney. Uh, and we have their pathetic letters home and, and also even sadder ones from their family longing to see them living in terrible poverty and finding it very, very tough. And eventually, the older man, uh, Wally or Whaley, he, he died. And the younger one, by this stage, uh, an elderly chap in his own right, was living in Hadley during King Philip's Wars, the great Native American uprising of 1675. And the Native Americans at this time had decided to expunge the colonial settlements. And they were doing this by drawing away men of fighting age and then doubling back and putting to death the elderly and the women and the children. And one day, the people of Hadley were in their meeting house when they realized that the Native Americans were attacking. And they panicked, and they didn't know what to do. They had weapons there, but they didn't know what to do. And then out of nowhere, uh, this is where history and legend collide because we don't have definitive proof, but we have tradition on this. An old man with a sword and a white beard appeared. He's at the top here. And he said, I am a general, and this is how we're going to do it. And he allegedly led the successful defense of Hadley, uh, and he's known as the Angel of Hadley now. Very handy to have one of the great military commanders of the 17th century hiding behind your chimney. There was another man who came this way. Uh, that's a Roman J. It looks like an I. And this is uh, a sketch of what was his tombstone. And his name was John Dixwell. And Dixwell is the luckiest uh, and probably the happiest of my killers uh, because the royalists, we don't know why, marked him down erroneously as dead. And so he came over here and uh, moved to New Haven uh, and basically lived in open sight. Uh, he had a, a false name. He called himself... James Davids. He married a very wealthy widow who obligingly died two weeks after the marriage. And then he married again and had a, a young family and lived. He had one terrible brush, actually. There was, a, there was a, a horrendous man called Andros who was sent over by Charles II to look for trouble in the colonies. And one day, Andros was in a church in Connecticut and he came out and he said to his people. He said, there's a man I, in my eyeline during the service. I can tell you two things about him. He's a, a man with a military bearing, and he's had positions of power. And that was correct. Uh, Dixwell was a colonel and also a member of parliament for Kent. 
Uh, but Dixwell knew he had been spotted, and when they went back to have another look at him at the second service of the Sunday, uh, he decided not to go. And he lived this charmed life, a very respected part of the community in Connecticut. Um, and then he died, as you can see, for the time at a very great age. But he had the great satisfaction before he died of saying, guess who I am. <laughs> and it is quite interesting when we're looking at the history of this part of America to know how important it was to Charles II to track down these killers. Up until his death in 1685, he was sending people to look for them here. And really, at the time, you know, when he sent the force that eventually took New Amsterdam, their secondary orders were to find these people. And I'm sure you know this better than I, but New Haven wasn't just a, a, a town in Connecticut. It was a whole area. It was its own independent colony. And it was Charles II's fury and frustration at the people of New Haven not tracking down these two men, Goff and Whaley, that led him to strike it out as an independent colony and have it forcibly cannibalized by Connecticut. So it did, this story does actually change the landscape uh, of this part of the world. Now, I'm getting to the very end now, and I wanted to give you a, a feeling of how big a stain it was to be a killer of the king, not just for you, but for your family. The elderly lady in the white veil here, and she was the widow of the John Lyle who was shot to death in the churchyard in Lausanne. And to just refresh you on the time scale here, the execution of the king took place in 1649, the restoration 1660. This is a painting of an event in 1685 when we had a, a, an ill-fated rebellion by the Duke of Monmouth trying to overthrow James II. And at the end of this rebellion, James II sent his most unpleasant judge, a man called Judge Jeffreys, down into the southwest of England where the rebellion had taken place to hang those who were involved and the problem for Dame Alice Lyle was that two of the rebels were found hiding in her barn, so she was taken to court for harboring uh, these, these criminals. Now, the jury were absolutely adamant that she was not guilty and also not fit to stand trial. She was a very elderly lady at the time, a great pillar of the community as well. Uh, but during the proceedings, they noticed that she kept nodding off and she couldn't follow the case against her. But Judge Jeffreys stood aside from the position of impartial judge and directed the jury to find her guilty, reminding them that she had to be evil because she was the widow of a man who had killed the king. So she was condemned to the female version of the terrible death I told you of before, and that was to be burnt at the stake. And this was commuted to beheading. And Dame Alice Lyle, the widow of a regicide, is the last woman in English history to be put to death in that way after a judge's verdict. So I really am at the end now. And I tell you, when I was writing this book, it is the fifth serious book I've written. And it, was, it is genuinely the most exciting one I've been involved in, to stumble across a story with so much going on and so many fascinating characters. In fact, the six characters I was going to first settle on when I proposed this to the publishers uh, didn't make it to the final cut. They, were, they, were, they became just paragraphs rather than chapters. Um, I thought, well, why is this? Why is this such a compelling story for me? And it reminded me that about 30 years ago, I joined NBC, uh, working for the Today Show, actually. And I think it's fairly obvious from an early age to my colleagues that I hadn't got a clue what I was doing. And a very kind veteran reporter took me aside. And he said, you know, if you want to tell a compelling story, you only want one of three reactions from your reader or audience. 
and that is, hey, that's me, hey, I wish that was me, or hey, I'm glad that's not me. <laughs> um, being a killer of the king was definitely the latter. Thank you very much.